Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Talk Recorded live. Welcome, everyone. This is the Spiral Foundation's live talk, Evening with the Expert. This talk is being recorded and will be available on the TalkShoe website for one week. Participants may download this talk for your own use following the presentation. After that time, the talk will be available on the Spiral Foundation website at www.thespiralfoundation.org. Participants may obtain a certificate for AOTA CEUs, by following the instructions in your confirmation email and taking a short test on tonight's talk. This talk is the copyrighted property of the Spiral Foundation and may not be copied or distributed without permission. Um, while we are um, on the call, um, those of you who are on your computers may type in questions uh, at any time in the um, chat box that is on your screen. Um, those of you who are on the phone, um, I have you muted so that we do not get your background noise um, disturbing the call. Um, I will unmute the call um, late at the end of the program. Um, so write down your questions if you have them, and um, you're welcome to ask your questions uh, at the end. Um, I'm sorry that we're not able to make that a little bit uh, easier, but we, we just get a huge amount of background noise. Um, if we leave you unmuted. So um, tonight's topic in our sensory integration and mental health concerns series is a sensory connections program, uh, mind-body approaches to treatment of mental health concerns. And hello everyone, I'm Dr. Teresa Mae Benson and I'm the Executive Director of the Spiral Foundation. And joining us tonight is Ms. Karen Moore. Um, Ms. Moore is an occupational therapist, researcher, and author with a specialty in the use of sensory approaches in mental health. Um, her books include the Sensory Connections Program, Activities for Mental Health Treatment, the Sensory Connection Self-Regulation Workbook, and a new book being published as we speak, the Sensory Connections Program, Curriculum for Self-Regulation, <clears throat> Group Treatment for Emotional Regulation, Crisis Intervention, and Stress Management. Uh, she lectures throughout the country on sensory-related treatment to hospitals, nursing homes, behavioral units, adolescent programs, and schools. Um, so she really gets around. Um, she provides training on the use of sensory modalities <clears throat> in trauma-informed care, uh, crisis intervention, and restraint and seclusion reduction. Um, Karen has done many trainings recently in response to an upsurge in interest in sensory approaches to treatment for at-risk youth, special needs students, individuals with developmental disabilities, uh, as well as residential and youth services programs uh, for young people with uh, behavioral and mental health challenges. So we're really um, very delighted to have Ms. Moore with us this evening uh, to discuss her experiences using uh, sensory integration interventions and sensory modalities 
to address mental health concerns. So welcome, Ms. Moore. Um, we're very happy to have you with us this evening. Thank you for joining us. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure. So um, what I'd like to do this evening is uh, talk a little bit about um, both your program, which I've been familiar with for some time and um, have found uh, pieces very useful in my practice, um, but also just um, about the use of sensory-based uh, strategies um, in general to address uh, mental health concerns. And uh, as you mentioned, this idea uh, of using sensory integration-based strategies to address especially arousal and emotional concerns um, in individuals with mental health problems has become a very hot topic <laughs> in recent years. Um, but this is really something you've been doing for over 10 years. Um, so can you tell us uh, really uh, how you got started along this path? Sure. Um, I, start, I started when I was first at Worcester State Hospital, and I read a little bit about um, Lorna Jean King, and she was using some sensory uh, groups with folks. Um, and I found that very interesting. And so we started a very um, uh, basic sensory group. We did some um, just just um, anything we could think of to sort of enrich the lives of uh, our clients who were in a very, um, as you know, sparse, um, mm -hmm. unsensory rich environment. And so we we used music. We did some rocking. We did. Um, just anything we could think of. We passed around things of different textures and so on. Um, and that's where early on I came across this idea, this thought of using what I call beanbag tapping because I wanted to get some kind of deep pressure touch into these folks who um, were so craving just human touch in general and we couldn't touch them. You can't hug someone with schizophrenia. So we started this beanbag tapping and I saw this amazing result. People started making eye contact. They started participating more. Their posture improved. And I thought, wow, if, if the, I was just astounded at this a response. And so I started doing more and more research about it, trying to learn more about it. I came across the writings of Mildred Ross, who was doing a, a five-stage treatment approach using sensory techniques. And I liked that idea. So we started uh, coming up with a group that all kind of had, had had some similar stages and and that really turned out to be even more helpful for folks um, and that eventually evolved into what we call the sense sensibility group, which runs every day to this day on a east uh, at UMass Memorial, which is where I went after the state hospital um, to help them initiate some sensory type programs into their acute psychiatric unit. So that's where it started, um, and it just kind of took on a life of its own from them. But because there was so little information out there, that's what really made me decide that I needed to write write about it and, and, and get some information out there, and that's how the first uh, books evolved, was to help people uh, do this program um, and make it easy for them to do it and give them lots of stories so that they can understand how this is all working. Mm -hmm. Well, I know um, your uh, Sensory Connections program books, um, those have been out now for some time, correct? Um, they have been. They yeah, have been. at least 10 years, I know. 
Yeah. Um, I, I actually remember I, w- I was actually teaching uh, a course uh, on adults uh, myself, and um, Karen Conrad came up and said, oh, we just got these new books. <laughs> and uh, she showed them to me at that point in time, and I just thought it was really um, uh, needed and, and interesting and uh, something really important to have out there. Um, why don't you tell us a little bit um, about your uh, program? Um, I don't want to spend tons of time on, on it specifically, but I do want people to know um, uh, a little bit about it. And um, especially what I like about it is you've got, as you said, you have different stages and components to it, which I think are a great way to kind of um, conceptualize uh, providing this kind of intervention. And um, also, if you could tell us a little bit about um, who the program is kind of designed for at this point um, in terms of uh, is it groups, is it individuals, can it kind of go either way, um, that kind of thing. Okay. Well, <clears throat> the Sunset Connection program is really a self-regulation program. Um, and if in the model of uh, sensory integration, it would definitely fit under sensory modulation. Um, but it's more than that. It uses sensory input, exercise, the mind-body connection, and social engagement uh, to facilitate the self-regulation, but also um, to teach people how to relax and to manage their stress. So those are three real important components of it. Um, and when I worked in mental health, I saw this inability to self-regulate as a key barrier to discharge and to ability, people's ability to um, be successful in the community. They couldn't calm themselves down. They would get themselves in trouble. They you know, would be acting out. They might even end up in restraints, which is not uh, where we wanted to go. Um, but I also saw the key um, to this problem uh, um, to be a lack of self-awareness. Because if we wanted people to self-regulate, they first had to be aware of, of what was going on. They had to be aware of their emotions and aware of where it was happening in their body. Um, and so that's where the sensory program uh, starts. All the programs starts with bringing self-awareness. And this is a critical piece that's missing in a lot of other approaches. Because if people aren't aware of themselves, how can they go on to have self-control? So the first, if I were to talk about the core things, the first would be working on self-awareness. How is my body feeling when I'm anxious? What am I feeling when I use a hand massager? Is this input calming? Is it alerting to you? So really focusing on that awareness. And the second part, thing, core component, would be the exploration of the sensory tools. How do we teach people about the sensory tools? How do we know they're using them properly? How do we go about this? How do we introduce these things? How do we keep track of what worked? Um, and then a uh, third component is definitely this group approach, which is unique. Uh, you Certainly you can use any of these interventions on, for individual treatment, but I think there are many um, individual treatment ideas out there, but not many programs that really do this in a whole group format, which is very important on, on uh, mental health units and in behavioral programs. How do we have a program that's going to teach our kids, teach our clients how to self-regulate? Um, 
And I think that's a, a unique part of the program. And it's this experiencing of this very carefully orchestrated sensory input that makes these programs uh, as effective as they are. A sensibility group, for example, clients love. It's a, it's a gateway group. They can attend it when they're so ill um, that you can't even imagine that they could hold for an hour in a group. But it's so carefully orchestrated. It meets their cognitive need, needs. It meets their developmental needs. It flows. It changes activities every 10 minutes. It, you know, It's just orchestrated for success. And people have fun. And people are setting up the chairs before you go in because they love this group. That's the kind of thing I wanted to to bring um, to mental health, something that people really enjoyed and were invested in. Um, another key component is consideration for the environment. What's, what's triggering this person? What's bothering them out there? Nobody thinks to look at that, but write that down or, or keep track of that. What's, what's triggering this person to be, you know, lose, lose control and start um, going into a crisis that we're going to have to step in? Um, how can we make them more comfortable? What can we put in place in the environment to support them? So that's a huge piece. Could with one component we use, one way we get we do this is getting people to design their own little comfort rooms where they have their supplies around them, the things that they need, and they can chill out in this safe space, so to speak, for a little bit. So that's a strategy. Um, another core component is this whole stress management piece. Um, which brings it to the level, how can I turn all that I've learned into making a plan for healthy living? And that's where um, the, the, um, the program takes you eventually when, if you keep, um, keep doing it and, or if you fulfill the 10 sessions of the curriculum, that's what you come out with is a plan basically for healthy living, a plan for stress management, a plan um, for crisis intervention. And all the books are uh, designed to do this. I would say that the first book, the hallmark of it, is that sensibility group. And that group is definitely designed for people who have cognitive challenges. That's what makes it so effective. You don't even have to have English as a first language to do well in that group. And that was important at um, UMass. Um, you can have a person who's very shut down and they can still participate. You can have a geriatric client who's starting to have dementia who can still really engage in this group. So that's the, the clientele that that group is so perfect for. Um, the self-regulation workbook is for someone who is working through all these things on their own, who could pick up the workbook and have some insight and be able to say, okay, I'm going to try these different things. I'm going to do these different activities. I'm going to use this, this worksheet activity and figure out you know, how I tune into my arousal level and so on, and they can use the workbook. So that's for a very high-level person. The curriculum is sort of a balance between those two. It's definitely geared toward um, or designed for adolescents and adults, to, uh, but it's got a little bit broader range of who it would reach from, um, you know, I would say a, a cognitive level down into the, the um, 4.6 range or so, up through the 5 range, people who have a little bit of insight, adolescents who uh, could really benefit from a structured approach. 
So that's a kind of a synopsis. Right. So basically, um, I think there are components of your approach that really um, can work kind of across the age span. Yes, definitely. Um, One of the things I was really um, interested in, and um, I will admit um, my uh, expertise in in mental health is is limited, Um, although I've had many clients with various kinds of mental health concerns. It's it's not been my um, particular specialty, so I feel like I still have lots to learn um, as well. But um, one of the things I really um, liked about the um, first book is that you talk in there about um, ways that sensory activities can help those with mental health. Um, And you go through a whole variety of mental health issues. Um, For instance, um, coping with stress and emotional regulation. Um, and things I didn't, I, I not working with especially acute populations anymore. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. Things like um, reality orientation and dissociation, um, and sort of that negative thinking, um, and um, the suicidality um, and the self-injurious uh, behaviors and those sensory distortions and uh, the disorganization and um, even the substance abuse or um, the cognitive problems uh, that you mentioned. And I, I really liked the way that you kind of broke down um, very explicitly um, how using some of these sensory strategies can specifically address some of those various areas. Um, and I wondered if you had any particular areas that you favor, that you see most often, um, you know, are there any particular problems you see um, change the most uh, amongst those kinds of things? Because I think we see those kind of in various manifestations in a lot of our kids with these mental health concerns. You do. You see, you see, um, you know, and when you think about it, almost any mental health issue has this, 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 this sensory distortion of some kind. Um, a person who is depressed is shut down. They're numb. They're not feeling anything. Um, the person who's manic is is so disoriented and out of it. Um, and and just to be able to to bring the person down and and bring them back to just working with some simple tools. What makes you feel better? You know, when was the last time someone uh, had a, be- a, a a child, let's say, with behavioral problem, and instead of telling them to do something, asked them, how does that feel? Which one of these do you like? You know, just that positive approach of, of handing the ball over to the person and saying, you know, you need to get yourself back in control. I'm going to help you, and let's look at these strategies and see how this can help you. I, I think that's that's part of it. Um, I think another big piece of it is it's so grounding. Um, 
everyone thinks we just use calming, but actually we use a lot of alerting because it's the alerting, it's the grounding things that help bring people back to reality if they're struggling with suicidality, they're struggling with um, ruminations or negative thinking uh, patterns. You want Those are distortions. Those are not reality. We want to use some kind of strong sensory input that's going to bring them back down to reality and and put them back in this world where it's safe and where the moment is safe. I think that's the biggest gift that we give. We give this input that brings people back to a place that's safe and grounded. And so we might use a canister with a strong smell in it for someone who dissociates to come back to reality. We might use beanbag tapping because that gives such input to the body. It's hard to not be in the person when you're doing that that strong beanbag tapping. Or we want to use that weighted blanket on someone that just helps them um, it, it, it literally calms the system and makes them feel secure. Uh, it's a secure space under that blanket. Um, so a lot of the mental health issues that we, we struggle with really respond to this very strong input that's bringing folks um, back to reality. Um, it's helping with disorganization. If you have an elderly person who's very disoriented, um, they say sundowning. One of the reasons that happens is later in the day, the person has fewer cues to keep them grounded. I think that's probably a piece of it. Um, so give them some a sensory snack at that time um, and give them something to make them feel grounded. Put a, put a weighted animal in their lap. Put a weighted, weighted lap pad in their lap. Um, help them feel secure. Um, and, and I think the population, if I were to say a popul- the population that help, is helped most by this, I would, in mental health, I would say it's people who have trauma histories. Okay. Because they're the ones that are um, so abandoned by their body. The body has been a source of great pain. They, they, to the point that they don't even want to know about their body. They dissociate from it. That word alone tells you that they are not in touch with their body at all. And so to bring them back to a place where the body is a source of comfort, where the body is uh, something where they can feel safe in their body again through the use of the sensory input, whether it's auditory safe space or cuddling under a heavy blanket or giving them the tools to just feel safe again um, and to not have to use maladaptive strategies like cutting or self-harm or so on. Those are very, very strong sensory um, uh, strategies to tell you the truth, as maladaptive as they might be, a person who is cutting can tell you clearly it calms them down. Well, it's having an enormous effect on the sensory system. Someone in war, um, the people who were the most hurt were not the ones crying for the pain medications. The ones who had the, were the most hurt were the ones that um, their own body chemistry was providing these these um, these chemicals, and that's what a person whose cutting has tapped into. It's working. So we need to develop some pretty strong strategies to help get the person away from um, strategies like, like cutting and self-harm. Um, but that's, 
that's the strength of this program. It's not, it offers something positive. It offers a replacement that's not going to replace that strong stuff right away, but it's going to build towards it. Um, and I think that that's a really interesting um, perspective for people to think about because I think in many cases with this population, we often um, feel like we have to go in and tread lightly. Um, and it's not that we don't have to be cautious about providing the input, but I think about, you know, we talk about the frequency, intensity, duration of inputs. And thinking about the fact that many of these individuals, whether they're children, adolescents, or geriatrics, um, may in fact be needing more intensity than what we might be thinking. Um, yeah. No, I think that's true. I in order to really make a point. And I like the idea, too, about the alerting concept because uh, I think you're right that a lot of times people think, oh, I've got to calm them down, I have to calm them down, not really thinking about, oh, I have to maybe increase that arousal or uh, you know, get some uh, alerting input in there to get them back in their bodies. Right, right. But again, this is where the education component is so important. The other trap is, however, that if a person is um, really shut down, they look like they need alerting. Right. And that is the absolute opposite from what they need. If they're, they're, you know, they're on such sensory overload or, or emotional overload that they are shut down, then we have to start back with calming input. And it's really important to be able to, to distinguish between those two. When do I use calming and when do I use alerting? And that, that I think, is where the educational piece um, comes in and the training comes in and getting staff all comfortable using this because they think, oh, sensory tools, I'm afraid I'm going to do something wrong. Well, first of all, there's not much you can really do wrong. We've had reactions where somebody had a really bad reaction to, let's say, a smell, but it was a point of learning. Nobody got hurt. Nobody died. No, nothing bad happened. The person had a little upsetting experience, but we learned from that and we helped them to be able to deal with this in the future if they encountered a smell like that. Mm-hmm. Um, most of the strategies that I use are very simple things. We want people to be able to continue using these out in the community. Not, not, and, and I'm not doing anything to anyone. I'm helping someone find something to do f- with themselves, for themselves. So we're not applying anything. I think this is where it differs from some traditional SI approaches. Um, we're engaging the person to um, to try this activity and then to want to do it at home and continue doing it at home. And sometimes part of the process, depending on the age of the person or the cognitive level, you're you're dealing with the care provider to teach them how to use this and why it's valuable and to allow the person to rock in a chair every night before they go to bed and make sure that that happens because it's calming or allow them to keep wrapped up in a blanket when they're feeling upset. Don't try to take it away or allow the person with developmental disabilities to ro- to keep rocking. They're going to rock it. That's calming themselves. And don't take that away until you replace it with something or maybe don't take it away at all. But be careful about that. Well, so I think part of, part of this is raising people's sensitivity. 
Well, since we're we're on this topic of activities, let's just talk a little bit about some of the activities. Usually I get to that a little later in the call, but let's do it now. Um, you've mentioned a few times um, your beanbag tapping. Mm -hmm. And I think that's something that um, a lot of people are not aware of. And um, I've, I've found it to be a really, really helpful um, strategy. Um, I've spent a lot of time working with uh, adults with SI issues, um, some who have some mental health things and some who don't. But uh, especially for those who don't like the Wilbarger approach, um, don't like the brushing, um, sometimes the beanbag tapping works great. So if you, maybe you could tell people a little bit about what that looks like. <laughs> uh, okay. When, they, <laughs> when we say beanbag tapping, it's like, hmm, what are they doing? <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it, um, it's hard to describe. It's easier to show. But what it is is take, just taking an ordinary little square beanbag, and you could use a beanbag, beanie baby or anything, any kind of beanbag really. One effective thing is sometimes to get um, the kids to make them themselves. Um, um, whatever. So anyway, you have this small square beanbag, and you start with some very firm taps on the palm of the hand and then the back of the hand, and then build slowly up the arm, tap, 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 really nice and nice and firm. It's got, it, it's a, you're doing something good to yourself. You certainly don't want to hurt yourself, but you want it nice and firm. You want to reach those deep pressure points, and you're going to tap up the arm, down another side of the arm, back up another side of the arm, and then get up to the shoulder and tap on a little bit of the back that you can reach, and then up forward on the pec muscles, tapping very firmly, then switch hands, start with the palm of the other hand, tap, tap, tap up the arm, down the arm, back up the arm. There is a similarity here to the Wilbarger protocol. Um, so some people, if they're familiar with that, you just imagine that you're giving this, this very similar technique, only instead of doing the brushing, you're doing the tapping. And then you start down the legs and tap very, there you can tap even more firmly, down the leg all the way to uh, the ankle, back up, down again, and then, you know, maybe the back of the leg, up again, then maybe tap, go down again, and tap the bottom of the foot, which is fun, and um, then you start with the other leg, and about at this point, I will ask people to stop for a minute, and just ask them to feel their body. And when they do that, they feel this very alive, tingly feeling. It's amazing. And when was the last time some of these folks even thought about the fact they had a body mm -hmm. or what it felt like? So it's a very powerful thing to be able to really feel your body now is feeling very alive. Um, and that usually ends it sometimes if they can tap a little bit on their back, that's fine. Um, and most people really like it. It's not quite as invasive as using a brush, scary as using a brush. It also is easier. The person can do it to themselves. And um, hygiene-wise, it's not quite as much of an issue. There's not really any harm that can come of it. The one, one thing you have to warn people is that you never tap on the abdomen or the stomach because that's can set off a very bad reaction. Um, and what I 
usually tell people is because it will upset their stomach, although what we don't want to hit is um, tapping into the vagus nerve or something down there. So, um, But anyway, to keep away from that, never tap on the head. So there are a few, you know, a couple of rules, but basically it's a very safe thing to do. Um, and it's something I can use, let's say a person is doing some cutting. I can't start a whole program, the Wilbarger program, with this person, but I can teach them to do beanbag tapping. And that's very easy. The beanbag is safe for them to have, and they can do it on their own, and I would encourage them to do it every two hours, just like the um, brushing lasts for about two hours. It seems that this beanbag tapping lasts almost that long as well. Uh, as well. So it's an intervention that people can feel very comfortable doing. Yeah, I've um, when I have my adults, I uh, always have them kind of put together a little fanny pack for, mm-hmm. you know, when they're out and about of sort of uh, here's your sensory tools um, or to, for ladies to have them in their bags or whatever. And having a, a small bean bag um, that they can carry around with them and, and to do that can be quite unobtrusive in some cases, even if it's just kind of getting it on their hands or their arms. Um, mm-hmm. It's something that they can do out in public, even if you have to go into the ladies' room or whatever and not look too weird, <laughs> you know? Right, right. Um, no, it's still, true. Still kind of get yourself uh, reorganized. Um, so I, uh, I've, I've found that to be a really um, very helpful um, program and uh, for all ages um, as well. Um, do you have a, f- uh, a few other sort of your favorite go-to treatment activities? I think that um, another really strong one is TheraBand's rowing. And all that is is to take a loop of TheraBand or you can use an exercise band. And if you're doing it with your client, you just have them hold one side of it and you hold the other. And then you ask them to bend forward as you pull. They're sitting as you pull against with the TheraBand and then go in and then pull again, have them reach out and pull. In the meantime, they're kind of rocking forward and then coming back. And you are too. You're, you, and you're starting this little engaging rowing kind of things. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I'll say, watch the person's expression because usually you'll get a big smile. Um, There's just, I I mean, you're getting all that proprioception, but you're also getting really strong vestibular input doing this. So it's like this double bonus. It's giving huge input to the body. And if you aren't, you can also teach someone to to do this um, themselves by just sitting and looping that loop of TheraBand over their their foot and then pulling up against it and releasing and pulling up against it and releasing. So that's one little uh, trick. You know, if I were to have my little sensory kit that I was taking in to work with someone, I might have a loop of TheraBand in my pocket. I'd have my I'd have my uh, bean bag in my pocket. Um, I might have a couche in my pocket because that I I love uh, the couche. I think that was designed for OTs um, because that just tossing the couche back and forth in the hands is giving lots of input in the hands, but also the rhythm. That's another thing we really use a lot of is rhythm and just that act of tossing that couche back and forth in their hands um, is very rhythmic. And, of course, they could do that with the beanbag, too. I think adolescents like that idea. It's not 
as you say, weird to just have some kind of um, ball in your, you know, nice thing about the couche, it doesn't go rolling everywhere, but you could have a stress ball or, a, you know, a... Um, any kind of a ball in your in your in your pocket, but it's just handy to have along with you. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the other trick that I use a lot is just humming, oh. and humming is very very powerful. Um, one of a person that um, really has informed my uh, treatment strategies is a, is a researcher called Stephen Porges, and Porges has um, this uh, theory that, um, well, it's not just a theory; he's done research on this that we have evolved into a higher level of stress response system rather than just our fight or flight. It's not as simple as that. As evolved human beings, we have what he calls the myelinated vagus, um, which is a mediator of the um, ANS, and it goes uh, from the brain and the cranial nerves down into the heart and the lungs and innervates all the... the, um, and different organs, and um, the old vagus would be what would set off the fight or flight response. And those, that part of the vagus nerve, when you dissect it, is non-myelinated. But there are myelinated sections of the vagus nerve that go up and innervate the um, all the cranial nerves, including the ones for um, the larynx and the pharynx and the eye, the muscles of the face itself, eye blinking, head turning, all those muscles um, are part of what he calls this this face heart uh, loop, and can be used very effectively as a higher level strategy for calming. And he would say that. Um, when we see a tiger, we don't automatically just go into fight or flight. We think about it. We ask the person next to us, hey, do you really see that tiger too? And we use this higher level of dealing with with this stress response to sort of evaluate things. And we want people to stay on that level. We don't want them to respond down at the older vagus level of fight or flight. We want them on this, this he calls it social engagement level, and we want them using those cranial nerves um, and respond, let's say, to just a smile or to, um, it's really all part of that suck, swallow, and breathe um, uh, sequence that um, Otter and Richter and and Frick talk about. Um, And that's causing the system to calm down. So doing something like humming in which you Mm-hmm. and you hold that hum, you can feel it. And first of all, in your whole body, it's setting off all the vestibular input. But that is is impacting that whole uh, new engagement system and helping us to calm down. And who can hum? Right. <laughs> so when, you know, and, and what this, this new way of looking at, at this informs us is the worst thing we can do to someone who's in crisis is go up and yell at them to calm down and look angry ourselves. What we need to do is the opposite. We need to look in control. We need to smile. That's going to automatically uh, change their, their whole system. We engage them in maybe, you know, um, doing something as simple as deep breathing, which again causes, you know, 
innervates the same nervous system or we just um, get them walking around and just talking with us. We get them humming. Um, Very, very powerful tools. I like that idea of um, the uh, just um, kind of using the facial expression um, as a way to sort of begin to connect with people and to help begin to pull them down because I think you're right that when somebody starts getting escalated, the first thing that happens is you get the frown on the face as opposed to maintaining that friendly, welcoming sort of face, um, facial expression with people um, to kind of mirror for them, okay, it's really fine, you know, it's like, be cool. Um, oh, it's, it's very effective, and people respond. And I have a little um, uh, thing that I've been doing recently uh, with a frame drum, which is just a very, very simple little drum that's fairly inexpensive. It's small. Uh-huh. I take it with me. And I will, um, if someone is having a very hard time, I would go up and hand, hand them the frame drum and say, show me how you're feeling. Show me those emotions. And, of course, they bang away at the on bang, 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 bang on the frame drum. And then I mirror that back. I take the drum back and I bang, 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 bang away on it. Is that how you're feeling? Is it that bad? Yes. I said, okay, I'm going to give this back to you, and I want you just to calm that down just a little. And so they bang, 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 just a little. And then he handed it back, and I mirror it again. Then I say, okay, how about if you calm that down even more? So then I hand it back, and they calm it down more. Then I say, how about if you follow what I do? And I tap out, you know, a, a little, little few tappy tune type things, hand it back. Then I slow that down. And it's amazing how, it's really, I'm using a lot of things here, but I'm using entrainment. Mm -hmm. I'm engaging them in this, you know, I'm making eye contact. I'm I'm reflecting back their emotions, so I'm validating them. I'm smiling. And you get this miraculous response with them just calming down as they then at the end are just tapping out some kind of little sequence on the drum. It's pretty powerful. Yeah, it is. And I think that starts to get into um, something you mentioned a little bit ago, which is uh, that mind-body connection. Um, And I'm wondering if you could just tell us a little bit more about what you think about that, how do you define that, what's its importance, what is it? Okay, well, what I always say in this approach is it's not so much the mind-body approach, it's the body-mind approach. Uh The reason being in mental health, very often the mind is not very accessible. It's not cooperating with us. We can't use strategies like, all right, just calm yourself down. That's not going to work. You know, the mind is causing part of the problem but we can use the body and give it some kind of really grounding input or calming input or something really strong that's going to make that that whole person calm down somehow. So we're we're using physiology. Um, and that's that's really part of the power of, of this approach. And just to give you an example of that, um, compare beanbag tapping for a second to meditation. A meditation would be sort of a mind approach, a cognitive approach. 
Um, meditation requires a lot of self-control. Beanbag tapping creates a state of self-control. Beanbag meditation is a high cognitive demand. Beanbag tapping is no cognitive demand. Meditation requires concentration. Beanbag tapping requires none. Meditation imagines the present. Beanbag tapping feels the present. Mm-hmm. Uh, meditation invites dissociation. Beanbag tapping invites integration. Meditation works to self-acceptance, and beanbag tapping starts at self-awareness. So it's this using the body when the mind isn't all that uh, cooperative that I think is really important in this approach. Um, but we also do use um, deep breathing and some kinds of approaches that you would think of as being um, uh, mind, mindfulness, but very rarely do I do something that doesn't involve the person actually doing something. Um, we never just sit around and do five minutes of deep breathing. We might do four deep breaths, but we also might be pacing around at that time. Um, so um, if I'm going to do some sort of um, make up your own mantra, um, I'm a good person, I'm a good person, I'm a good person, I'm going to have them manipulating some little beads or having a worry stone in their pocket. I'm going to have some sort of sensory input going on at the same time. So for us, the body connection is is probably as important or more important than the mind connection. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. It does. Um, I think that's great. And I think that's one of the things that, with that emphasis on the body, makes it, really appropriate for younger children where who don't really have those cognitive skills online in the first place. Right. You know? Exactly. And so, you know, you're you're sort of going getting into them at that body level. Um and that that kind of said, um what uh, you know, one of the things I think that's great about this program um is that it it really is a program for OTs. Um, there are a number of other programs out there that are starting to emerge, um, interdisciplinary programs, which are great, but um, other ones that are more geared towards psychotherapists, learning about some of the, the body things. Um, what, what do OTs need to know about mental health? Um, as they, you know, if if somebody is going to start working with individuals with some of these mental health concerns, what do you, you know, you've been doing this for a long time. Um, what do they really need to know about mental health? Um, well, I, you know, it just makes sense to apply this in mental health. I think we already have the training for that. I think we have all, all everything we need. And that's not to say it doesn't help to go to conferences and it doesn't help to learn more and you're not going to get a more effective, of course you are. But I think as OTs, that's what makes us such unique providers of this. Um, and so... Um, take this whole program to another level. Yes, someone can do this who is a social worker or whatever, could do a sensibility group or whatever, but I think OTs are able to take it to a whole other level because of our expertise. We we all have background. If we go into mental health, we've still taken courses in sensory integration. We're still com- we are still familiar with the neurological underpinnings of all of this. We might not have 
the same understanding as someone who has been doing it for years, but we have a basic understanding, and I think that people should be less afraid to to take this on and, and more open to the idea of just trying some of these things. They're simple. They make sense. We do them every day ourselves. We all have sensory strategies. I, I always say, if I handed you a screaming baby, you would know exactly what to do, right? Right, and I, I do think um, that's something that we see a lot with, with our, our staff who are new to dealing with individuals with, with the mental health concerns is that fear of, well, what do I do with them? And what happens if I do something wrong? Or, you know, what if they have a meltdown? Or, you know, something like that. And I think there's that... There's always those concerns um, that go into that insecurity in terms of working uh, with this population. Uh, I agree, but I think a lot of it is just our own insecurities because I think if people tried it, their responses are, they're, they're going to be very surprised, pleasantly surprised. People respond to this very positively. Yes, once in a while we can trigger somebody by doing the wrong thing, but it does not happen very often. And um, and you, very often if you know the person at all and have read their chart and know their issues, you can sort of be careful of things that you sense might trigger them. For example, if you know a person was... Um, you know, abused by their father, and the father was always drunk, you're certainly going to stay away from anything that has smell of beer or alcohol. I mean, you just use your common sense. Um, I think as OTs, we have good instincts for that. And and, um, And if the person has a meltdown because of one particular thing, then that's an opportunity for learning. Um... Let's say the person reacted to a certain smell. Well, it's an opportunity to talk about what happens when you're out in public and you come across the smell. How are you going to handle this? How are you going to keep yourself safe? Here's some strategies. So we we turn that around. So there's not a lot of harm that can come of this approach. I think that's what we have to get people comfortable with Um, and just trying it. And I think the most important part of the, all of this is is our interaction with with the client. It's that therapeutic relationship. It's not handing them a kush ball. It's handing them a basket of different kush balls and saying, which one of these do you like? I really like this one. And wow, you like that yucky sticky one? I think that's kind of weird. But, you know, you just want to use this as, as a tool to to engage with the person and get them comfortable and it's pretty easy to do right so what kind of training do you recommend for people do you have specific courses or um, training programs that you like to recommend I think the best um, training for mental health that's out there is given by Tina Champagne Uh, she works out in Western Mass and has done some excellent work um, in using sensory techniques and mental health. And she's got um, a very good uh, conference program going. Um, unfortunately, there's not that many of us out there doing this with mm-hmm. tragedy. I thought by now, uh, surely there'd be some more. Um, I um, have done a few open conferences. However, I now only do them um when I'm engaged to do so by a facility or a program. Um, uh-huh. Sometimes groups get together and, and get a training. And, and, and I think that's all, 
always helpful. And one thing that happens when I do the training is, um, trainings, usually we try to get all the staff to come from every level. Because the people at night, for example, the people actually in the position of having to use some of these techniques. That's when people go off. That's when people have problems. So training the whole staff. And so it's not even just a matter of training ourselves, but then we want to be able to go and train, you know, our whole staff to be cooperative with this and to get on board with this, especially if we're trying to reduce restraints, for example, or seclusion or so on. We we want to try to get everybody on board. Um, and... I wish there was more out there for people. What I did when I was learning was I went to every sensory conference, including yours, anything I could get my hands on, I went to. Because all of that fed, all that information fed into my understanding of the sensory system and different techniques, and you always get new strategies and new tricks and so on, sort of how I built my own repertoire. Um, And then just combined it with my own experiences in mental health. Um, I did try to build into all of my books a lot of background information about this. I think if people really study the background information in the books, it could be a a great help. It's all in very non-technical terms because the idea is for the person to be able to then use these exact examples with their clients and and teach their clients or the, or their staff um, about this this uh, approach and you want very user friendly language so that's it's it's not described in theoretical or technical terms but it's described in some basic background information that should be helpful. And I also, on my website, I'm sure Tina's too, there's tons of information, links to different great articles, uh, movies, um, background information. There's an extensive, extensive uh, list of um, resources, you know, on the Internet site. The Internet site itself has all kinds of information on it, on sensory rooms and... um, uh, it's just a wealth of information that I think people could really take advantage of and learn learn a lot from. So your website for our listeners is uh, www.sensoryconnections.com. Is that correct? Sensory Connection Program. Program. Yeah, you have to get the program in there, .com. Okay. I, personally, I find the easiest way to, and to get to it sometimes is just doing Sensory Connection Karen Moore or something like that. Okay. Google it. And um, in terms of other kinds of resources and references, um, what what other do you have other particular resources or references that you sort of are like your go tos? Um, I think that especially if you're working with children, I think uh, Williams and Schellenberger's um, How Did Your Engine Run book is, is excellent and gives, again, some great background information. It's a very similar approach in many ways, um, having the person, to the child, tune into their engine. I love that. You know, I, I kind of use um, a, more of a using... Um, music, tuning in musically, but but I like that engine approach. It's particularly good with children. So I I think um, reading their books or even going to one of their conferences gives you um, a very good sense of this whole idea of the the self-regulation. I think that um, although there's a lot of overlap, I don't think that 
you know, they don't do any groups, for example. They don't, they don't approach this as a group treatment type thing. I think that, um, you know, I, I think that the Sensory Connection Program um, takes it all to another level in, in terms of including stress management and um, relaxation and some other, other pieces to it. But it certainly is a good place to start. Um, I also think just taking courses with uh, Sheila Frick and the listening program has great applications uh, to this. Or um, I particularly love the ROM dance, the range of motion dance program by... Um, what is that called? ROM dance, range of motion, R-O-M oh, yeah. dance. It's actually developed by... Um, it's a Tai Chi type program that, you know, is nice. I think it's very good to integrate, um, and they have an excellent uh, website. Um, let me think. Um, those are the biggest ones. Tina Champagne, again, has an excellent site with a lot of information on it, and she has an excellent, excellent book called uh, Sensory Modulation and the Environment, yep. which um, would be great reading if you want, you know, to get a lot of background information on on this kind of approach. Very a lot of overlap. Um, those are the those are the you know the ones that come to mind for me. I I, I again I wish there was uh, more out there. I think that um, slowly it's emerging. I have had uh, been approached by different people for that want to do some research on on this particular program and mm-hmm. um, especially in Australia that's that's actually happening as we speak. Um, so I, I think hopefully this will be forthcoming and, and people won't be afraid to take it and run with it. I, I think people are so afraid to impinge upon you and your copyright, they're afraid to take it. No, take it. Take it and run. Give courses on this. I, I'm getting too old for this business. I want, I want someone to take it over. Just <laughs> getting that information out there a little bit more. Um, all right. Uh let me think of what else I wanted to talk about. Oh, I know. One other thing kind of related to what we were talking about that I would just wanted to touch on, which you've uh, mentioned a couple of times, was um, this idea of the sensory rooms. And I know that, uh, you know, the whole Snoozalyn thing is, is quite popular. And um, I'm just wondering what your thoughts are on um, those, you know, the sensory rooms, um, when are they helpful? When are they not? Um, I know a lot of people sink a lot of money into them, and I'm just wondering sort of what your experience has been um, with uh, sort of those kinds of environments. Well, first of all, my idea of a sensory room is not one of these really fancy rooms with all this beautiful, crazy equipment in it. To me, a sensory room is a place, first of all, where people can just find a little refuge and go and calm down and have a couple of nice beanbag chairs, really comforting place with some tools available right there. Um, what, I, what I'm trying to mimic is a place that might be similar at home. And so my carryover piece is that I want people to be um, designing a comfort space at home. 
And that's what I want the room and the use of the room to mimic. So the comfort space could just be a chair in the corner of a room. And you have your little basket of your sensory tools. You might have your sound machine. You might have, you know, just a, a, a nice blanket, a warm blanket there. You might have a, a weighted animal that you've, um, someone's made for you. All these comforting things in that little space that you can use if you get upset. You can go to it and, and kind of have rules around it. If you're in your, in your safe space, everybody has to kind of leave you alone kind of thing. And you can go there and calm down or you can use it before you go someplace stressful or after you get someplace stressful. So this is, to me, this is where we're going with the sensory room idea. We're using the sensory room as sort of an exploratory place for us to try out this idea to go and find refuge if you're on a unit or in a behavioral program or in a school, go and calm yourself down and, um, and then, you know, learn the tools that are helpful for you. All right. Awesome. Well, our time is just about up here. Um, and I'd like to just open up the lines now for questions. So those of you on your computers, if you'd like to um, type in any questions, please feel free to do that. Um, those of you on the phone, I have several people. Um, I'm going to ask you to please mute your phones unless you have a question um, so that we don't get your background noise. Um, if you're not sure how to do it on your phone, most phones um, you can hit um, star six, uh, and that should mute you. But I'm, I'm going to un unmute you now. Um, and if you would like to um, ask any questions, um, you're now open. Um, for the lines are open, and you can feel free to go ahead and speak to me. If you have questions for Karen. Okay. Um, one person asked Karen if you could spell the name of the researcher that's done work on the humming. That's Porges, right? It's Stephen, Stephen Porges, P-O-R-G-E-S. And he's he's got what they call um, the polyvagal theory. That's right. Yeah, that's which is right. exactly what you were talking about. So if you Google uh, Porges polyvagal theory, um, he'll come up with all kinds of stuff. Absolutely. He's actually and he's written great. many, many articles. And yeah, it, as an OT, you just love him because he taps right into all the things we've been doing all along. Excellent. Any other questions this evening? We tend to have really quiet bunches. <laughs> it's hard. It's hard to ask questions and be put on the spot. Yeah. Anywhere to, is there any um, is there anything on YouTube or anything that you can people can see the beanbag tapping? Is there like any little? I don't. I, there isn't. You know, we're pretty challenged technologically up here in some ways in the North Country, and I don't have very good internet access. But that's actually a very good idea. I think <laughs> I'm going to have to work on that, <laughs> and then have a link from my website to show the beanbag tapping. That's a very good idea. Yeah, I think that would be great. So no, uh, Jennifer, at this point, nothing's available. <laughs> no, I wish. I wish. But 
again, just try it. Try it on yourself. You know, get a little rhythm for yourself. It's nothing scary. No harm can come. Just stay away from your stomach. That's the only rule. Uh, She says she might have to have her level two students come up with a video. (laughs) Hey, that would be perfect. Yeah, they've got the technology. (laughs) (laughs) They've got the technology, that's for sure. All right, any other questions from our uh our our listeners this evening? No? All right. Well, Karen, thank you so much uh for joining us. Um and our our time is up. Um for our listeners, thank you very much. Um watch our website and our mailing list um for more details of upcoming courses. Um, Thank you all for joining uh, our live talk uh, and our sensory integration and mental health series. And uh, watch our website at www.thespiralfoundation.org for our next live talk presentation and to obtain copies of past programs. And thank you all very much. Good evening. Thank you. Good night. Good night. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.